Hello and welcome to Nudging Pixels, where we take a deep dive into the who's who of Finnish tech and design, where we are all doing so much more than just Nudging Pixels. I'm your host Elina. And I'm Maya. This month we are in conversation with Akseli Antela, the principal UX designer at Vario Technologies. In this episode, we discuss designing for VR, what not to learn from science fiction movies, and find out more about Vario's revolutionary VR headset. There has been a hype around virtual reality for years now, from Johnny Quest's exciting adventures to the Academy Award-winning film Avatar. Books and films have given us all the talking points until now. But only in the past few years have tech companies really started to get into developing the right technologies for it. Also, not many designers actually know how to design for or even with VR. But now there's Vario, the headset everyone is excited about. So, Axeli, what is Vario? So Vario is a uh, Finnish startup. Uh, we are doing the world's first human eye resolution VR headset. And uh, basically what we are doing is, is tool for, tools for professionals. So we are creating a, a product that is meant for um, people who really um, need to solve problems through VR, uh, either creative professionals like architects and designers or people who are involved in simulation. For example, people who build simulations of power plant uh, control systems or, um, for example, pilots who need to learn how to pilot an aircraft or stuff like that. So that's what we do. And um, yeah, uh, we've uh, we've been quite popular lately in the, in the press because we really do have a headset that allows you for the first time to see what the human eye sees. Because you have the actual physical product, so the so the headset, and then the UX, so the what you see uh, through those head, headsets. So what's the balance in your design team between the actual physical product design and the UX design? Well, first, the good thing is that we are we're the same design team and we sit really close together. And, and, and I think that's crucial in any kind of like design or creating something new. The key is that you need to be really close to each other as colleagues. So organizationally and, and physically. So uh, we are, I think, two thirds UX and, and one third industrial design because we are creating a physical product. Yeah. So and, and the creating the physical product is, is because we are creating a complicated physical product. Um, uh, there's a lot of like mechanical design that, that we need to figure out. There's a lot and then there's a lot of uh, ergonomics, for example. We are talking about a thing that sits on your face for uh, for long periods of time. Or maybe not. Mm-hmm. There might be a situation where you just quickly peek into the headset. So the industrial designers have a massive set of problems they need to solve. How would we make this comfortable, um, uh, serves its purpose and is desirable from, from kind of a styling and, uh, and um, what is the story that the, the thing tells. And the same things of course apply to the digital design that we do. What is the thing you see inside that also uh, is uh, basically ergonomical so you're not, your eyes don't get tired. Even if you're colorblind, you can still use it. And basic stuff like that. Plus, talks about the same language as as the other parts of the experience. Um, Because one of the key things we need to figure out, because we we do a physical product, we do a um, 
user experience of the things you see inside it. We do websites, uh, we do online tools for the guys who are using it. All needs to look like it came from a single designer's um, fountain pen in a way. So trying to figure out how these completely different things speak the same language is of course a is big design. Um, not a dilemma, but a challenge. Well, not even a challenge, a, a joy to solve in a way. How, how does this change in the different headsets also sort of help you understand what the experience is supposed to be like? I mean, what are the challenges when you're designing? Like here, are you designing specifically for um, what the Vario headset does? Or are you also sort of looking to expand to see how that experience can be plugged into these different types of headsets that exist? It depends on the customer need. For example, if we are talking to somebody who, for example, works in marketing and they have a range of uh, products they want to launch the VR experience for, ranging from cardboard all the way to Vario, for example. And uh, it's, it's kind of similar to the problem you're facing when you have to do a website for mobile and uh, very large screens. How do, you, how do you make it consistent or do you have to make different versions for different things? The, the, the shock that you get if you, if you start working for a Vario headset is that you can see absolutely everything. Yeah. For, and and, uh, and um, if you design for a Vive Pro, for example, or an Oculus Rift, which are the kind of a fairly well-known examples of higher end consumer devices, you really can't use the same textures. So that's only about the visuals. Yeah. Then there's of course the whole thing about how do you control the experience? What are the kind of controls you use? Uh, do you uh, need to figure out how a professional who's um, using the mouse and the keyboard, how would they use that, do that with a headset or whether their hands should be visible and used for controls. Yeah. So because the VR uh, landscape is quite fragmented at the moment, uh, when it comes to what kind of devices people use. If you have to design for all of them, you do have a rocky road ahead of you. And if you add on the audio commands and those yes. kind of things. <laughs> so that, that's basically the, mod, uh, the problem that we have so many modalities that could be used. Uh, so I would say that the graphics is the easiest thing to do. You can just look and see, does this work? But then the controls, the input, and then the different contexts of use. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm designing now for somebody who's a, who has a backpack PC and is going to move freely in a space versus somebody who's sitting at a desk yes. and then standing up occasionally. So, um, yeah, it is... You sort of, the problems get much more severe in, in designing for this kind of a setup than if you design for, for example, mobile use, mm -hmm. where you still need to take the context of use into account, but the fundamental device somebody's interacting with is, is much more limited. Yeah, that's interesting. And you wouldn't think that as the first problem, how to do the commands, mm -hmm. whereas the picture is so... Um, immersive and, and complicated itself. I think when we are designing with technology, I guess also in the case of VR, it is important to maybe remember that the technology maybe shouldn't define what the experience should be like, and maybe it should, uh, like the final, and what is this experience for? And then you sort of pick the technology based, or in this case, pick the headset based on that. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, you should always remember that the 
that it's all about solving a user's problem or providing a, a um, opportunity for the user. That is the fundamental drive of everything you do. And even if something is cool to do, or you can do it, or you have the APIs and the SDK allows this and that, and you have this new cool new controller, you shouldn't use it if it doesn't make the user's life easier. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the problem with VR is that people have seen things, especially in science fiction, that they think is, well, it definitely looks cool, but then is ultimately extremely bad as an user experience. So you, you, try, you need to sort of like, uh, understand what is hype and, and what is reality and um, as is VR has been such a tech fanboy driven industry so far you have a lot of these really bad examples floating around that you should avoid. You have talked and even lectured about the role of science fiction in design and, and is as an inspiration for designers so can you say any inspiration that you have had from the science fiction movie or or comic or yes so um, films science fiction films I think they are a nice vehicle to inspire and they're also a very dangerous thing because they do give from the wrong impression because films have different uh, end they, they they try to do different things than UIs and, and, and applications and, and user experience. They try to thrill you and user experience usually about sort of getting things effortlessly done. So they're diametrically opposed. I mean, definitely the, the example I always bring is Minority Report and some crews using the uh, massive kind of like floating UI as the worst possible example you could ever pick for any UI ever, any planet at any time, purely because um, because it's such a dangerous experience. Everybody loves it. It's a really powerful. It's it's an image that everybody sees that, oh, that's cool, that's future, I wish I could do that, manage all that information with such effort, effortless grace. And people don't realize when they're looking at the beautiful images in the film that there's no way anybody can use their hands like that for anything longer than 90 seconds. I was actually watching the Avengers film on Friday, I think, yeah. was it on TV? And the, all those scenes when Iron Man is flying and then he's like calling uh, Gwyneth Paltrow on the side, but he's also doing something because he's like, has to fly the nuke into the hole. I'm like, how are you looking at everything at the same time? That, that helmet is like right here in front of your face, but... He has a super brain. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a bit of a problem, of course, for a, for a designer because depending on, because in a way, the thing you do has to sell. Either the, the client you're working for has to buy the, buy the thing or actual kind of end users have to buy the thing. And uh, if they have expectations of what the future looks like, that will influence their desire to adopt your product. Um, you mentioned before also that Barrio is sort of using it more in a B2B sense, also maybe for training purposes or in the fields of like art and architecture. Um, are, do you see the future of VR sort of mostly restricting itself to those spaces or do you see it becoming more commonplace for, for consumers to use it? I would say that any technology when it comes uh, comfortable enough to use and, and affordable enough uh, to obtain will be a consumer product. And of course, it's we okay from Google Glass. We know that there are social 
societal uh, issues also at play, like the ob- like the fact that you think that somebody is snooping on you by looking at you was a massive problem with Google Glass. So why? It's not necessarily a question of how can we do it. Yes, of course we can. Eventually, we will be having glasses that are very, very comfortable wear, like eyeglasses, and you will have lots of high density information on them. Whether it's desirable, uh, probably, but we need to solve some uh, societal and interpersonal um, kind of behavior issues before that. We already know that people have problems by misusing their mobile phones. Yeah. I mean, we, we know for a fact that if the mother isn't looking enough at her uh, infant at a certain stage in the infant's development, it, there will be issues for the child. I mean, the good thing about mixed reality glasses is, of course, that you see through them. So I will be actually looking at you. So I'm not looking somewhere. I'm not looking down. So maybe we will have a better society when we actually have mixed reality. Um, Could you maybe define what mixed reality is for our listeners? So uh, there are a lot of terms that are bandied about when it comes to VR. So there's virtual reality, which basically... For my purposes, I define as that you are inside a bubble of uh, virtuality. Everything you see and hear was created, and it has no reflection of where you are in the physical world. So it's completely virtual. Augmented reality, I think you could talk about things like HoloLens, uh, which is basically you have a, in a way, um, spectacles or glasses which you can see through but we can also um, project information on top of the real world but you're always seeing the real world the current versions of this technology have a bit of a problem because they can only project uh, more light into the scene for example if you're looking at a white wall with the current technology it's very difficult to see anything because um, you can all, all the text you will be reading in the actual glasses will be white and therefore difficult to read. And that's why we uh, talk more about mixed reality, which is basically, for example, you have a camera. <clears throat> in, so you have uh, op- opaque glasses, but you have cameras that are shooting the environment around you. And you can freely mix uh, virtual objects with a real video feed, for example. So that's kind of, you're mixing uh, realities. You're not augmenting the uh, real world with virtual stuff, but you're mixing the virtual with the real. So maybe those three terms are most used in, in our language at the moment, the virtual, augmented, and, and mixed reality. So do you see that that's the future of designers to have the skills also to design for VR and R and mixed reality? Or do you think it's more like a specialist uh, thing or skill? I think you should you should un, you should have the level of understanding about if you're doing any design interaction or graphics design or anything you should have enough exposure to what virtual reality is to understand the inherent limitations and, and opportunities uh, within virtual reality. But for example, if you have an extremely good graphics designer, uh, then 
there's a lot of graphics design work in virtual reality applications. So there's no need necessary for you to be uh, an extremely good designer of 3D interactive environments, which is one part of what happens in virtual reality. Uh, just be a really good um, graphics designer who understand what kind of graphics and layouts and uh, interactions with menus that can work in virtual reality environments. Uh, so I would say that understand enough about the environment you're designing for to feel comfortable that you know the limitations. This means that try and do as much as you possibly can in VR. The, uh, if you're designing for VR, you really have to do it. Uh, you have to view the result in VR. Uh, fundamentally understand what are the situations where people will be using these different things. What are people willing to do in a certain situation? If, if, for example, they have a phone, what they are going to do with that phone? Or understand that if people have VR glasses, they are not going to run, run down the street because A, the cable will snap and B, they will run into a wall. <laughs> so you have to just understand what, what the device is and, and how it's used. But try to be good at something at least. <laughs> Are those maybe your uh, your principles to remember when designing for VR sort of <laughs> thing, or would you like to add something a bit more to to that? that? Okay, there's a wealth of information around. If you want to start designing for VR, I mean, go to YouTube and watch all the keynotes from various players who actually make headsets nowadays. That's a really good quick thing. So watch those spend a few hours doing that and uh, then just get cracking. Um, uh, going back to also the uses of VR, how do you sort of see these industries themselves change, like the training industry or, or, or people who, or how architects work, for example, how, how does VR influence this and how does the what does the future look like for them? Well, uh, in, in the training and simulation industry, for example, there's a big move uh, towards more affordable systems. So traditionally, it's quite expensive to make, make uh, simulation setups. So um, if you can train more people more efficiently, and uh, uh, then that's also a massive benefit for them. And also, if we are talking about VR as a training thing, so there's a lot of cases where people are using VR for training, anything ranging from firemen to pilots to, to operating big machinery. Then one of the benefits, if you, if you get higher resolution, is, for example, that you are not teaching the wrong thing to people. For example, we know very well that if you're giving a pilot a lower resolution headset, they actually need to see the label of a button before they press it, so they will actually move their head closer to the button. And that is something that they would not do in real life. So obviously, uh, if you have higher human eye resolution, then you will, they will be closer to the real situation. But basically, cost savings in the, for example, uh, when, when you have VR setups, you have much um, more affordable setups in, in the training uh, industry. And you can therefore train more, train for more situations. One of the things you consistently hear from architects, for example, is that nobody can read 2D plans. And sometimes, and this they even say, sometimes it, even we as trained architects sometimes have issues when we go to the site and see, oh, 
gosh, the hole is that big in the ground. So VR has one, one major advantage over other visualization methods. Uh, I mean, of course, for, for example, in architecture, they use quite a lot of real-time 3D uh, rendering on a on normal screen. So you can see the house, for example, and, it, and that's a great thing. But you don't understand the scale and size of things before you get to VR. And it can range from anything like, I wonder if this corridor is wide enough to feel comfortable going through, or, oh wow, the building is actually that big. So a sense of your size as a human versus the scale of things that you're designing, especially when you're designing things that are larger than a washing machine. Basically, so big things are easier to understand. And the fact that you can, with VR, it's easier to understand what you're looking at is, is a really massive benefit in the beginning of the design phase when you're trying to sketch out and, and talk with your colleagues or customers. Like, is this what we want? From a designer or a professional point of view, I think the big benefit is really in the beginning that you're able to figure out early enough the what you're actually going to start making. So that's where we will we'll see the real benefit in the creative industry. It's just much more powerful as a communication vehicle than traditional visualization or illustration. So it kind of answers the problem of people's inability to sense the space or remember the space and dimensions. So that's really interesting angle. Yeah. angle to this. Uh, and also that brings me to another question, which is how much do you have scientific uh, research or whatever to back up uh, your designs in a sense that like in biology, like how does people see, how does people sense things? How much do you use that information? But VR is not a new thing. People have been researching virtual reality and, and uh, augmented mixed reality for, in some cases, for decades. So luckily we, we can check, are we now doing the uh, correct thing? Especially if you haven't designed for VR extensively in the past, it's a really good idea to read the basic textbooks about 3D, uh, user interfaces and that kind of stuff, so that you don't make the mistakes because it's easy to see that everybody makes the same mistakes in the beginning. Do you see that there is some ethical discussions going around VR? And uh, like, what are the main issues with VR from this perspective? In a broader sense, uh, I think there are some fundamental issues you need to address when you, when you think about VR, especially as a consumer industry. And the fact is that, first of all, when we talk about VR uh, being a virtual bubble, it is fundamentally exclusive of your surroundings and potentially of other people as well. So you really get, um, you get into that world and it's, you forget the surroundings quite easily. And that can be addictive. And um, in those situations, uh, people who design those experiences should uh, really think about how do they encourage people to end the experience and uh, have rest, uh, rest periods or uh, other, other kind of ways to re-engage re with reality. So that's one thing. The second thing is of course related to a social virtual reality experiences, which I'm not sure if it's 
any more problematic than any other social media situation where, okay, in, in mid 90s when I did my, when I finally did my master thesis for Media Lab, I, was, I, I did a thing about uh, online uh, virtual societies. It basically, it was uh, uh, multi-person chats, uh, chats and news groups. So this was like early early nineties, and already then there were a lot of discussion about how do people behave when they are masked by a nickname or, in our case, an avatar, and why do be people behave badly? Or uh, and and the most brutal example was that can you virtually rape somebody? Because it was an actual case somebody was hijacking somebody's character in, in a multiplayer game and and, and uh, it was quite nasty. So nothing has changed I think in the behavior of human beings. We haven't seen any kind of like people being more enlightened in how they behave if they are representing themselves virtually. So it basically means that when you create social media in virtual reality, you have to understand that there are people who will not behave properly. And because you're in virtual reality, the experience can be even more traumatic to, to the others. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you should, should consider of what kind of social mechanisms you build in place if you're engaged in virtual reality design in that domain. But of course, I personally, uh, I'm not designing anything like that. So personally, uh, we don't encounter those problems. We are talking about professional uses. But whenever you design any social and, and uh, aspects, you, there are some fundamental ethical ground rules. And when you're designing anything, there are some ethical ground rules you have to understand. Number one, the user is always in control. That's fundamental. Whatever you design, the user must feel that you're empowering the user. The user controls the experience and not the other way around. But ethics, yeah, you should always, always understand that we as user experience designers, we are fundamentally servants of the user. That's the primary target for us. I mean, it's not the project manager, it's not the scrum master, it's not the CTO, uh, it's not the 65% uh, share owner, it's the user. So we are trying to solve real problems with the best skills that we have. And if you if you're able to do that, then you're halfway there at least. Thank you for coming in, Axeli. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Nudging Pixels. We release a new episode on the second Friday of every month. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Music for this show was created by Nico Salminen. Visual design and art by Illusia Sarwas. This episode was recorded and edited at Houston Inc.'s office in not-so-sunny Helsinki. <laughs>